All right. Hello. Welcome to Crosspoint. Yes. Good morning. Okay. We are, uh, we're making our way through Ephesians. We finished Ephesians 1 last week. And now we're starting Ephesians 2, making progress. We're going to use the whiteboard tonight. Yeah. So I'm going to try to stay out of y'all's way. Last time, uh-oh. Last time I was in y'all's way, and I got text messages while I was up here to get out of the way. Okay. Um, there we go. Now we're ready. Okay. Uh, so I want to I want to let you know where we're going before we get started, because tonight is exceptionally, it's exceptionally important, uh, is, is the only way to put it. I think... Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, well, really what Joe preached on last week and then Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is all connected. Uh, and, and honestly, in, in my opinion, this is one of the most important sections in the entire New Testament about what it means to walk with the Lord that I think is, is, is a bit forgotten. I think it's a bit forgotten. I don't think we really, I don't think we really have a clear view of what this is talking about. Um, I don't think we walk in, in the power that he's talking about here. Uh, and, and so, just to give you an idea of where we're going, um, I, I became a believer at 22. You know, I was in the church when I was young. I sort of left the church because I felt like, the, I, I had so many, so many reasons. Mostly my own pride and me wanting to do what I wanted to do. Of course, I had questions and church was a little weird for me when I was growing up. But other than that, it was more me wanting to do what I wanted to do. And so I was like, all right, I'm done with this. Um, and I didn't really say I was done with it. I wasn't done with God or Jesus. I still entertained a lot of stuff about God and Jesus. I would read books about science and God and Jesus. And I would get in arguments with my friends when we were drinking or smoking about Jesus um, and his existence. And so I, there was still a lot of me wrestling with that. But none of me was submitted to the Lord at all. At all. When I was 22, uh, the Lord began to do a few things and brought me to the realization that even though I might mentally accept him and mentally agree that he exists, I have uh, no real relationship with, with him and I'm in a really bad place to the degree that I felt the weight of my sin for the first time, the weight of what I had done for the last seven years, the weight of what I was doing to my family, uh, just the weight of me being, just, ju- just the weight of me being in complete rebellion against him. And just walking in pride and arrogance. Uh, and I felt that for the first time. Uh, and the Lord really in that moment, I mean I felt it for a second. And then in that moment, the reality of Jesus, the reality of the need for Jesus, why the cross is so important, how the cross forgives me and where none of that stands in between me and in God because of the work of Jesus and that I, all I had to do was say, God, I realize all of that and I'm broken before you and I need you. And then it was just like, oh my God, that's what Jesus, this whole Jesus thing is about. That's what that's about. Like, but I didn't really, I couldn't grapple with the reality of Jesus until I had been like sort of crushed under the weight of what I'd been walking in for, for a long time. So I spent about a year like feeling good, right? Like feeling good about the Lord, like really sensing his grace and walking with him and getting up and like trying to understand the word. And I would read like Hosea and start crying. And I felt like a bit of a woman. And I just like would read about this man chasing this prostitute, like Hosea is about the man chasing this prostitute and continually forgiving her. And I would just be like, 
like, I'm the prostitute, God, that's me. You know, like I would just like cry and, and I just like between me and the Lord, it was like, it was growing, like, and it was beautiful and I loved it. And then, and then I don't know why it happened when it did, but I just began to realize, and I can give you a great example. I, I started dating my, uh, my, my wife, I started dating her. Um, and the closer we got, the more physical we got. And I did not want that. Like from day one, I didn't want that. Like I called her the night that I noticed she was hitting on me a little bit. And I was like, I noticed you're hitting on me a little bit. And I like you too. But like, this has got to be about Jesus. Like this has got to be like, like this is, this is, we have to be like very intentional about this. And from day one, it wasn't like we went into that lazy and we, we really were intentional about it. like if we're going to if we are going to talk about dating and we're going to talk about that, then uh, we're going to be real about what it means to walk with the Lord in the middle of that. But the closer we got, the more physical we got. And, and, and as much as I love Jesus, I started to notice that my lust and my desire for her and my desire to be filled by her was more powerful than my willpower. And so that I began to, uh, like, it, like, we began to just get closer and closer. And then we would do things that I really felt terrible about. But three days later, I would do the same thing again. And then I would go, if y'all are familiar with Campus Crusade, I would, go to, I would go to Crew. And then I would talk to Scott Allen and be like, we did it again. Like, we, we went too far. And he would, like, calm me down and be like, Jesus still loves you. Can we need to walk our way out of this? It was just like over and over. And I began to see that there was something powerful at work against me that I was not strong enough to do away with. And then the more I've talked to people, the more that I've come to interact with students and like meet with people and, and have coffee and see how their life is going, the more I see that that is a very common occurrence, that you walk with Jesus, but as you try to walk with Jesus, there are very powerful things that come against you in you um, that you don't like, but you just can't seem to get past. And the more you try to get past them, the more you keep running up to this brick wall, and then you read things like, like we were just singing about. Like you read stuff like Matthew 11, where it says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, um, and take my yoke on you, and I'll give you rest. And I was like, reading that and I'm like rest what are you talking about like there's no rest I have no rest I believe you exist but but like trying to walk in holiness and do what I feel like you're calling me to do seems like the most impossible thing I've ever done and so just this deep frustration was constantly welling up in me and so I mean I've, I've as I've talked to people I've seen this like in the way of of anger in the way of lust in the way of fear in the way of anxiety and that we're all different there's different things at work against us but at the at the bottom level it's really all the same that there's something powerful that seems like it's actually more powerful than the promises of Jesus it seems like it's more powerful than the holy spirit and so like i'm trying to grapple with why why are, like are you doing this to me god like do you not want me to like walk in holiness with this girl that i want to marry and, and i just couldn't i couldn't put it together man like i just and I, and I just walked in this frustration for so long. And I would try to suppress it and come to church and sing and I try to do all this stuff to make that go away. But I just couldn't get past the fact that something in me or against me or something was just, was just so powerful that I couldn't do what the Lord had called me to do. And it seemed like the Bible was saying that it shouldn't be that way. And I just, but I just couldn't figure out what the deal was, right? And somebody opened this text up for me for the first time. It was, it was 
life-changing and it's continued to be life-changing. So what I want to look at tonight hinges on what Joe talked about last week. It hinges on this specific verse that's at the end of Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 19 to 21, but it specifically says this. Paul says to the Ephesians, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, I want you to know the great power that's at work in you or towards you. I want you to know the great power that's at work in you or towards you who believe. And then he goes on to say, it's this power that raised Christ from the dead It's this power that raised Christ from the dead and also seated Him at the right hand of the Father far above all rule, power, authority, dominion, above every name that's named in this age and in the one to come. Right? And so He says, I want you to know the power that's at work in you. This same power has power over death. The same power has power to take someone who is dead and make them alive. Like Not just like in some spiritual sense, but in some very real physical sense that Jesus was in a grave, He was in a tomb, um, and, and this power made him alive, and then not only made him alive, but what we see is 50 days later, he ascends through the clouds to the right hand of the Father where he currently sits. And it specifically says, above all power, dominion, authority, above every name, this name. And so we read that and we're like, wow, beautiful words. That's really great, man. Um, but I, I, I think our, our worldview is so different from first century Judean worldview that those words don't make that much sense. What's power? What's dominion? What's every name that is named? What does that even mean to me today? Like, what does that mean to me? What, what are those things, right? And so while it sounds beautiful, it's also very meaningless at the same time. Uh, and so I, wanna, I want to paint for us now, um, I, I'm going to draw it in stick figures uh, because that's how I can consume facts is through very simple drawings. Um, and I, w- I want to just paint a very simple view of existence for us that I don't think we walk in as, as, as Western Americans, right? And, I, and, and we've alluded to it in Ephesians 1, and I, and I think what we need to do is just draw it out. That way when we read Ephesians 2, you can see it, and it's already there. It's already unpacked. So when we start clicking through Ephesians 2, it's, it's already unpacked, and we can see it. We can apply very easily, right? Very simple. So, um, and what you're going to see, incidentally, is this what we're going to draw has been, we've been talking about it since day one this semester. It's like, if we're, I'm just going to draw for you basically Ephesians 1, 1 all the way to Ephesians 2. That's basically what we're going to do. So remember how we started, right? That there is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? So there's a Father, there's a God who exists in three beings, Father, Son, and HS. It's his shortened name is the Holy Spirit, right? Um, so that God exists in this Trinitarian being in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we looked at Ephesians 1, uh, 3 to 15, and what we saw in 3 to 15 is it's basically just Paul praising God for the work of the Father in salvation, for the work of the Son in salvation, and for the work of the Holy Spirit. That the Father had a plan for all of time that after man fell, even before man fell, that the Father had a plan to send the Son full of the Holy Spirit to redeem mankind. And it was not something that he just ad hoc made up so he could fix this problem that came up, but he did it and he had a plan to do it from the very beginning. It was the Father's will to do that. It's his desire to draw you to himself. That it's his, his desire to draw you into his family, right? So we saw that the Father's work in salvation was very much to guide things according to his will. And I'm just going to use this arrow to mean his will, right? 
Um, that this is the, the role of the Father. Okay, and then, and then we saw the work of the Son. The, the work of the Son in saving us was to come and die on a cross, right? For Him to come to be crucified so that our sins would be crucified on Him, that they would be punished, and that His life would be attributed to me so that the Father sees me as He sees His own Son, and that I am in the family of God now because of the work of the Father and the Son. And that the Holy Spirit has been given to us who have believed in Jesus. The Holy Spirit has been given as a seal as like a first deposit is really what the text says the first deposit uh, it's like the beginning of life with God so we get this we get the spirit as a seal to say yeah this is he's a part of the family you are a father you are I mean you are a son you are a daughter you're a child of God because you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit that was promised from the Old Testament that when the anointed one would come when the Messiah would come he would come full of the spirit and then he would give the spirit to those who would follow in his name right so we see the work of the father the son and the the Holy Spirit in salvation. And Paul in, in, in verse 1, 3 to 15 is just unpacking that. And then we jumped in to, to the very next part. And that's what uh, Joe unpacked for you last time. So remember week 1, week 2, week 3, and then Joe unpacked for you last time what Paul was praying for the Ephesians in light of this, right? And what he was praying was three things, but he lands on the final one. He says, I want you to know the great power that's at work in you who believe and it's the same power so we're going to draw something else here right so my marker my marker is acting up a little bit okay so that's the world y'all have seen parts of this drawing before right right okay good that's the world it's purple or sfa and that's us that's me or you uh Okay, so then what we get is, this is the view that we get of existence from Ephesians 1. That we're in a bad place, right? And let me show you why. What we got from Ephesians 1 is that there's something at work against us, and that is sin. There's something in us. Uh, like we talked about uh, three weeks ago, there's something in us that draws us away from the Lord. My parents didn't shape me and form me to be an addict. Like my parents raised me really well, but there was something in me that found it very easy to be addicted to weed, to be addicted uh, to alcohol, to be addicted to cocaine, to be addicted to pills. There was something that happened very easily in me, and it wasn't because I was shaped in this way. It was because I was born broken, and when I found this thing that satisfied me, I just, I just consumed it. I just consumed it, right? So that there's something in me at work against me. There's something in me that's going to push me and, and, and draw me away from, from God and from his will. But this is where we've got to start to interact with it. I don't think we interact with enough. That it's not just sin that we're interacting with. That there's something else, and, you've, and we talk about this in Christianity all the time. Y'all can read that, right? It says the world. Okay, so that we're born into systems, political systems, cultural systems, and the Bible calls that the world, and I'm going to unpack that in a second. But here's where this gets weird, okay? I'm not going to lie to you, this gets weird here, so just be okay with that. That the world, because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden, they were supposed to have dominion over the world. It was supposed to be humans in relationship with this being guiding the world according to this arrow. Does that make sense? The original design was human beings 
in relationship, guiding the world according to the will of God. We fell prey to the lies of the enemy, and what happened is we defaulted. And what happens, what we see all over the book of Ephesians, we're going to unpack it even more and more, is that the world, and you're going to see this in 1 John all over the place, that the world actually lies under the power of Satan and demons. Right? Told you it's getting weird, right? Told you that. Uh, we need to grapple with this, and you need to grapple with this. You need to grapple with the idea, do you affirm what Scripture says about the nature of existence? Western mindset, Western culture says this doesn't exist and human culture is by far the best thing on the planet, right? The the current Western mindset is that there is no spiritual realm, there is only a natural realm, and if you buy into the idea that there is a spiritual realm and that that spiritual realm actually guides the direction of this world, you're a loon. Like, that's what... That's what our culture, that's what the modern American Western cultural mindset is. The, the, the first century Judean, especially Christian mindset, is, is wildly different from that. that the, the mindset is this, that there is a spiritual realm where Satan and demons actually control the direction that the world is going. And so I wanted to unpack world for a minute because Satan and demons you get, I think. The world, I don't think we get. That there are systems, uh, political and cultural systems that shape and have the power to conform you into a specific direction. I'm going to make a bad example, but I'll give you an example. I was a real good kid. And then, this is so simplistic, and it's the truth, but it's sort of. I was a great kid. Went to church. Got my car when I was 16. And it was like this old Lexus that my dad had got for real cheap. And I put screens in it, right? Because I wanted to be like from the streets. You know what I mean? Like I thought I was super gangster, right? So I put screens in this Lexus. And I watched Friday. Y'all familiar with Friday? You know what that is? Right? Okay. And watched Friday. And Friday was such a compelling film for me, that I was like, I wonder what it's like to smoke weed. I didn't cuss at the time. Like, I was a good kid, right? I didn't cuss at the time. Like, in Friday, the cussing made me a little weirded out. You know what I mean? But I had this kid in my science class. It had been in my science class for like three years, and I helped him with his homework. We were good friends, and he always tried to sell me weed, like once a week. He was like, you want to buy a bag of weed? I was like, no, Larry Berry. His name was Larry Berry. I'm like, no, Larry Berry. I I don't want that. And then I watched Friday, and I was like, you know, I'll try that out. It seems like the show makes it seem like a real good time. And I, and I use that as a real simplistic way. It's very simplistic, and you're going to think I'm just a, a simpleton, but it's a very simple way of saying movies, media, music. We live in a culture that just piece by piece shapes the way that we think, the way that, like, shapes our value systems. This is why, like, it, when we were in Crystal Beach, 
I, ch- I was trying to take my car off onto the beach so we could drive down Crystal Beach where it looks like you're in a country music video. Like, everybody's dressed the same. They all have big trucks. They're all drinking Coors Light. Like, they're all sitting on the beach doing exactly the same thing because there is music now that defines what it looks like to be sort of a country guy who gets out on the beach and plays washers and drinks Coors Light. Like, that's what you do. And so you have cultural mindsets that while it's not like people go to the music and like, what should I do today? But it's so powerful that you're going to see people groups that are so defined by music um, and, and they're defined by media and they're defined by um, movies like our culture has the power to shape the way that we think and it's not so overt most of you aren't as stupid as me and that one movie is like whoa but it's just little by little by little by little our culture tells you what is good what is valuable what is fun what you should be pursuing what you should look like what you should wear how you should act what your life should be like how you should do college how that should go how when you get to college your life should sort of look like the hangover for two semesters so that you have the college experience and then when you're done with the college experience you can sort of shape up and then you get on the pursuit for the white picket fence and the two and a half kids and the dog and the cat right so that our culture has shaped the way that you think future is supposed to play out you're supposed to come here for two years at, like have the hangover experience and be like oh it's crazy and we had stories but now that i'm going to find my wife in the last two years we're going to get married and then we're going to pull off and i'm going to get a good job that pays me sixty-five thousand dollars a year and then after four years i can hopefully get up to 75 and then maybe i can get a close to 100000 a year. My wife's going to be working and then we're going to have kids. And, and so you get this life painted for you. Like, where did that come from? It specifically came from our cultural identity. So you have a culture that shapes everything. And then you have that You have the national culture about what America is like. You have generational cultures like the ones I just told you about what your college experience and your future should be like. And then how you should dress. Every commercial is telling you how to dress, how to look, what to do, what to wear. Right? So you've got your your generation is being shaped by this cultural identity. And then underneath that, you you have a world system. You have a culture that is specifically from your own home. That your home had a culture. That my home had a culture, and it was strong enough to shape the direction that I went. My dad liked to use big words around me, and he would like get angry. The only thing my dad ever got angry about was the way that I spoke English. Like when I was five and I talked like a baby, he'd be like, no, like they used to tape me in the car with my friends. Um, where we would talk about dinosaurs, and then I was listening to these tapes, you know, from when I was three or four years old, like very young, and I'm listening to these tapes later on in life, and I noticed that like every, I don't know, like every hour or so on the tape, my dad would sort of get crazy on me about the, the, the way that I was talking, and, I, and I've never heard my dad talk like that, except for in those cases, so that my dad was creating this culture at home that was really focused on learning, and that was good. It wasn't a bad thing, but everybody's got this culture that they're sort of shaped into, And so when I say the world, that's precisely what I mean. I mean the cultural, political identity that is specific to you, but you also share with the people around you a little bit. And the specific thing that we need to interact with is the fact that that is not shaped by accident. What Scripture is going to say, and you need to wrestle with if you believe this or not, that the world and the culture that you live in is shaped by a spiritual force of darkness that is driving that world into a bad place. While there may be redeeming qualities to it, it's being driven into a bad place. And that we are following in line. And it's appealing very much to sin. And so we're caught up into it. And we are 
I don't know how else to say it. You're screwed. You're in a bad place because of that. And so what we saw last week, what we saw last week that, that um, Joe unpacked is, I want you to know the great power that's at work against you. You have these three powers at work against you. I want you to know the great power that's at work in you. And this work is predicated on the work of Jesus. So that Jesus came full of the Holy Spirit to the earth. We'll give him some sweet because he's like probably look a little bit like a hippie and a beard. That Jesus came full of the Holy Spirit like us in every respect but did not sin did not conform to the world around him, rejected every temptation thrown at him by Satan in the demonic realm, and so was positioned, perfectly positioned, to die on a cross for us so that his perfect life could be attributed to me and my sins attributed to him. And so here's what he says. I want you to know the great power that's at work in you. It did two things. It raised Christ from the dead. So he goes from this cross where he's crucified. It raised him from the dead, point one, and then seated him at the right hand of the Father. And this is the right hand because the Father's looking at you. So don't say it's on the wrong side. It's on the right side. Seated him at the right hand of the Father far above all rule, power, authority, dominion, every name that is named. You see what that means? You see where we're going now? Two things happened. This power at work in you, first, how do we know what it is? Well, it raised Christ from the dead. It took him from death to life and then seated him here at the right hand of the Father. Okay, and then he says, that power is at work in you. He's going to take that phrase and that phrase applies all the way to the bottom of chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 is still unpacking the great power at work in you. So let's jump in now that it's, it's already 8. Okay. <laughs> we shouldn't have to unpack very much more because this is just going to make sense in light of what we've just talked about, right? So just listen. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So he's talking to people who were non-believers and now have come, become believers. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, right? Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world under the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. So it's not just that you were screwed. That was bad. That was a poor explanation. You were dead. The problem is, the problem is, there's two problems. The first problem is, you don't feel dead. I didn't feel dead before I became a believer. 
I felt sort of alive because I was chasing the dreams that my world painted for me. I was chasing the dreams, and I didn't have the hangover back then. We had How High, I had Friday, I had Days and Confused, right? I had different films that sort of shaped what the experience was supposed to be like. But I chased that experience. I chased that experience, and on the way up that hill, it felt okay. I had a good time. I made some friends. We had some stories Yes, it was fine. And it wasn't until later on that I got a glimpse of the fact. God in his grace gave me a glimpse of the fact that I was dead. That I had no life. That when I laid my head down on the pillow at night, I was not satisfied. I was deeply unsatisfied. And I was deeply unsatisfied because deep down I knew that I was not created for this. I was not created to deaden my body with, a, with drugs so that I could do dumb things with my friends and then wake up and go to work so that I could make money to do it all over again. I was created for more than that. I was created for more than the American dream. I was created for more than the college experience. I was created for more than that. I was created for more than a good family with two and a half kids and a dog and a cat and a picket fence. I was made for more than that. And deep down, I knew that. And God in his grace gave me a glimpse of that. And it was in that moment I felt dead for the first time. And it was in that moment that he showed me you don't have to be right. And this is exactly what Paul is alluding to me. He's reminding his readers, hey, 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 remember. But he's also doing something else. In his argument in the text, he's linking where you were with where Christ was. So what does this power have the power to do? It has the power to raise from death to life. So let's keep going, right? So we'll finish verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, that we were all in this place. It doesn't matter if you were raised in the church and were a good kid and didn't do anything bad, and your parents, that you did everything your parents said. You were still dead. Everyone is on the same playing field before God. Without Jesus, you're dead. You may not feel it. You may not know it right now. But you're dead. And, and so he's putting everybody on a level playing field. And he's saying, um, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Okay, very simply put, he's just linking chapter 2 with chapter 1. What does the power have the power to do? It has the power to take Christ from death to life and seat him at the right hand of the Father. What does the work of Christ have to do in you? What does this power do in you? It takes you from death to life You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and when you believed in Jesus, Paul says you were crucified with Christ. Your sins were crucified with Christ. You were crucified with him, but then you were raised to life with him, and you were seated with him in heavenly places. Insofar that the things that were at work against me before I was a believer, 
I've now been crucified to them, and everything that I did in accordance with them was placed on Jesus. His perfect life, when he did everything not in accordance with these things, was placed on me. I was made alive, and this is in the present tense, and seated with him in heavenly places. So let me show you what this means. What this means is that we have this really broken view of what salvation is. We think salvation is I die and I go to heaven. That when we say, have you ever been saved? Or are you saved? What we mean is, are you saved from hell? Or are you saved from the wrath of God? Or however you want to put it. But our viewpoint of being saved is that we're saved from hell or we're saved from the wrath of God. When the viewpoint of Paul, when he uses the word saved, what does he mean? He means you've been saved from these things at work in your life. So let's tie this up for a second. Let's tie it up for a second. What happens is we believe in Jesus and that's right and good, but our view of what it means to believe in Jesus is a, is a touch broken. So we believe in Jesus. We become confident that we're going to go to heaven when we die. But then what happens is these things still exist and even though you actually have power over them, you're never taught how to stand against them and so you accept Jesus but you still buy into the lies that these things are telling you and then you walk in them and you find yourself underneath their power again. And so you start walking along and this is exactly what I began to experience. I was saved and felt fine and good and I was like, wonderful, I've been saved. Jesus loves me. This is awesome. The Father accepts me. My sins are forgiven. I'm the prostitute who's been brought home, right? Like all those things. This is a beautiful thing. But then no one ever taught me what it looks like to stand against my sin. All they taught me was to be moral and to be good. So no one ever taught me what it looks like to reject the lies of the world, to reject the lies of the enemy, to to reject the idea that there's a spiritual force of darkness at work against me to bring me underneath this again. That while I don't have to be, if I don't believe it and walk in it, I will be. So this is why Galatians 5 says, stand firm. And don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's for freedom you were set free. Stand firm. And we're not taught how to stand, and so we constantly come under the yoke of slavery again. We come under the yoke of lust. We come under the yoke of anger. We come under the yoke of anxiety. We come under the yoke of conformity to social standards. We come under these yokes that are not easy to bear, and then we come to Jesus and say, I thought I had your yoke on me. How come it's not restful? And he's like, You do have my yoke on you, but you also have a few other yokes on you. You need to be liked by the people that you preach to. And so you come up here and out of fear, try to get them to like you with what you say. You have this yoke of acceptance on you. You have this yoke of fear on you. You have this yoke of anger on you. And it's a, it's a terrible master, and you don't have to be there. Okay. Let's finish this out. Let's finish this out and then we'll tie it all up. And this is where he sort of does this beautiful closure to this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you feel the ease of that? Do you feel the beauty of that? Does that sound like your experience with the Lord? 
confidence in that you are his workmanship, that you are going to be created in the image of Jesus because of the power of God and not by your own works, and that as you do that, you're actually going to walk in good works. So it's not that God doesn't want good works for you, and it's not that God doesn't want holiness for you. It's not any of those things. He wants all those things. But what we assume is this. This is what we assume. We buy into the idea about saving being only about heaven and not about deposing the authorities and the powers against us. And then we're fairly blind to these things anyway. We don't really put a guard on our mind when I'm watching TV. I don't really put a guard on my mind when I'm just sitting and thinking. And so things come in that are accusing me. Things come in that make me feel like I'm really not worthy. I'm really not accepted by God or I need to do something to do that. And so I'm sort of sitting up underneath all of this stuff. You know, I'm sitting up and I don't know what it looks like and I don't know where it's coming from. All I know is I feel a little weird about everything. But I've bought into this thing about Jesus getting me to heaven. I haven't bought into the truth and the belief that he actually rescues me from the powers that are at work against me. And then when I start to feel bad and feel far from God, what do I run to? I run one of two ways. I run to works, which God wants for you, but he wants to produce them in you as you submit to his yoke that's easy and light, and he wants to walk them out through you. That's what he wants, but instead, we come at these works, read my Bible, pray, fast, Um, read a Christian book, listen to Christian music, right? Those are all good things, but what happens is I come up underneath the burden of all this, and I can't figure out what the problem is, and so I run to these things that are good, but they do not have the power to free me from these things. Those things do not have the power to do that. Only belief and trust and faith in Jesus and his work and the renunciation of the things that you've given yourself to have the power to do that. To, to turn from these and come underneath this once again. That's the only thing that has the power to do it. But we, we're not really taught how that looks or what that works or how that, like, what that looks like. So what we do is I feel weird here again. I know I believe in Jesus, but I feel off, I don't feel right, or I'm coming up against a place where I know, like with my, with my uh, wife before we got married, I know I want to walk in holiness, but for some reason, every three days, we can't keep our hands off of each other. And now, as I'm getting, as like, we've been married four years now, and, and I'm getting to know her more, something that we just ran up against with her is that there are things that consistently will draw anger out of her where she has these outbursts of anger that she just can't figure out where they came from. And so we're seeing that there are these things in like anger that she can suppress if the situation is right. But when the situation isn't right or things come up that weren't planned or things are a little different or the baby's acting a little freaking crazy, then she gets nuts, right, and gets super angry. And then we get to the end of the day, we put the baby down, she sits at the table and just cries, I don't, I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be this way. I don't want to be this way. Right? And we, I think we all, at least at some point in our walk with the Lord, have been in that place where I don't want to be this way. And then what do we do? We run to works to try to fix it. We run to, I need to pray more. I need to read the Bible more. I need to fast more. I need to do these things. Those are great things. And those may, may be a part of it. But the first thing we have to do is believe that one, these things are at work against you and you need to know how 
the demonic works against you because he works different against you than he does against me. I buy into probably more stupid lies than you buy into, but I buy into a specific set of lies. You do the same. You need to know exactly how they come against you. You need to know how you buy into the world. Like I'm a sucker for, for, for things on TV. Commercials get me every time, right? Like I, I see a commercial, like, I need to own that. That would be really great. And it's just appeasing this thing in me. But if I'm not really clear and know how to stand against that, if I'm not really clear and know when it's coming in and put it to death immediately, it begins to take root and take hold and I find myself there again. And what I did for the first year is I saddled myself with religion. Let me do a few more works because works are good. And that wasn't the case. I need to walk under the yoke of Jesus as the Father conforms me to the image of Jesus and then does the works of Jesus through me in rest and in patience as I walk with the Father according to his will. Right. The other thing that we'll do, we'll get so frustrated because the religion's not working and we just jump headlong into whatever rebellion feels the best to us a boyfriend or a girlfriend who has nothing to do with the Lord and really just wants to get in your pants and you'll jump off into that because it satisfies for a little while. You'll jump back off into addictions that you put down. You'll jump back off into just like being, being super lazy and watching Netflix all day. Netflix isn't bad, but some of you have made it bad. Grey's Anatomy, you don't need to watch that anymore. All right, but... But you see where I'm going? You may not jump into addictions. You may not jump into sex. You might jump into this weird place of isolation where you're just covering yourself with TV because it numbs the pain. Right? You're just covering yourself with it. Because we haven't learned what it looks like to stay here. And so we go one of two ways. We go one of two ways. Jump back into the rebellion because I want to feel okay. I really do. I'm tired of feeling like crap. And it seems like God's not coming through. He's not there. He wants me to stay here. And he absolutely does not want you to stay there. Okay. So then the answer is, hey, what do we do? What do we do? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this really brief. Because the answer is going to be different for each one of you. Uh, the answer is going to be different for each one of you. I would say very generally. I'm going to say it this way. The answer is going to be a little different, but a little bit the same. But this is where the need for discipleship and community comes into your life. I cannot fix that from the stage. There are things going on in you that cannot be fixed from a stage in you in a pew, period. There's no amount of truth that you can get from right here that's going to set that right. You need someone who can dig and knows what they're looking for and you trust to pull back the layers because it's not that that stuff that's in there you just want to get rid of. Some of that stuff in there is hiding behind a lot of pain and a lot of brutality and a lot of abuse. It's hiding behind things in you that are not easy to get past because they've hurt you so much that you've closed up. And you need somebody that you trust that can dig around a little bit and say, look, this is crazy and this needs to be confessed, repented of, put to death and put away. You need to do this. You've got anger in here that's going crazy and you need to put that to death. You need to find forgiveness. You need to forgive these people and get away from this. Some of you got anger towards like your mom and your dad that's like 14 years old and they probably did some really bad things. It needs to be put to death because that anger in you is not going to produce holiness, right? The blood of Jesus is good for you and for your parents, 
and for the people that have done terrible things to you. But that's just one of like a million things. Lust has its own little way. Anxiety has its own little way. Like it's all a little different, but it's all come from something different. And, and, and you need someone to dig a bit. And that's where community and discipleship has got to come to play in your life. It's got to come to play in your life. If you're isolating yourself, if you're isolating yourself, it does not get better. It doesn't. We are the people of God called into the community of God to find life with God, and that does not happen. This is not about you and God. This is about us and God. It is about us and God. And so you need somebody who knows what they're looking for to dig around and say, hey, do we need, can we deal with this? Can we deal with this? And you'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's killing me, man. Let's do that. Okay, so that is very generally speaking. If like you've isolated yourself since you've been here, you're not going to find life there. And if you want to, take that Connect card, give it to Madeline at the back, and like we'll put you in a community group. We have a meeting every day of the week. And I'm not just plugging community group right now. I don't like doing that from sermons. But honestly, like you need to be in community with people who understand the gospel and know how to apply it to you. Lastly, I want to be a little more specific if we can, just because we have the opportunity. If you still don't, if you try to affirm the Bible, you believe in Jesus and all these things, like I understand if you're not a believer and you don't really know if the Bible is true and I'm starting talking about demons up here and you're like, what the heck? Okay, and I totally get that right. But you do need to grapple with the fact that if you do buy into this thing, like if you've committed your life to Jesus and you're not buying into the biblical worldview, like if you're buying into the fact that Jesus did some things but you're like, I don't know about that, you really need to grapple with that. Is your life submitted, not just submitted to these things, but you will be submitted to these things if you ignore the fact that they're there. You ignoring that they're there is not going to mean that you're absent from it. It's going to mean that you're going to get beat up in the war and you're not going to know where it's coming from. So you need to grapple with the notion of, is the, do I buy into the biblical worldview and am I grappling with that? Am I walking against these things on a daily basis? Or am I just like blindly walking along? So very generally first, is this something that you need clarity about in your life? Is it? And then secondly, I've already alluded to it, the other thing is this specifically. The only way that you find life in this thing is belief. It's not by works. It's by belief. Do I believe that in Jesus' name, I really have power over lust? The enemy is at work against you to tell you that you don't. And what he's doing is he's saying, look at your experience. You've tried and tried and tried to be holy in this area, and you failed. You must be doing something wrong. You must not have power. He's lying to you about that. The first step in walking out of this is first just believing what the text says. I want you to know. That's why he's praying for the Ephesians because the enemy is at work against them saying, no, you don't. You're powerless. You're weak. You're stupid. You're an idiot. Like you, have, you are going to be plagued with this your whole life. You're going to fight this battle your whole life. You're never going to find victory. Plaguing the Ephesians. He said, I want you to know the great power that's at work in you. Right, The power that's in work in you raised Christ from the dead, seated him above these powers, and you in Christ have been brought from death to life and seated with Christ above these powers. So the beginning of walking out from the power is first acknowledging it's there, and then secondly saying, I've been rescued from it in Jesus' name. I can have victory over this in Jesus' name. And it might be a battle, and it might be a fight. It might be a fight, no doubt about it. It may be difficult for a minute for you to put some stuff to death, 
But there is life and there is victory and there is freedom and there is joy and there is peace. And it really is there and it's not some corny things that we sing about from the pews because we like to sing about stuff like that to God. It's stuff that we believe actually exists as we submit to the yoke of Jesus, believe that we have power, start to see where we've submitted ourselves to the powers that work against us and cut some ties off and walk away. Confess, repent, and believe that I have power in his name over these things and that I probably will engage in this battle until the day I die, but I will not be a slave to it and I will not be failing in this battle to the day I die. I can have victory in this and I can walk in this and when the battle comes, I can be ready for it and I can stand against it. Right, so that's the second step and that is realizing that it's there but then realizing that I don't have to be a slave to it. I don't have to be. But it's going to take a little bit of opening up and coming into community and submitting yourself to some people and trusting them. Yeah. It's there. Life, beauty, freedom, power. It, I mean, it really is there. But it takes being real about some stuff, about where you are and where you want to be and if you don't like where you are and being real about that with somebody. <laughs>